you have a Bible, and I hope you do, please turn with me to Ezra chapter 5. Ezra chapter 5. This morning we'll be continuing our study walking through the book of Ezra. So far we have seen something of a roller coaster of emotions as we have been walking through this book one chapter at a time. And we have seen the joy of the people of Israel coming out of, out of exile, even as we said then, coming home and the joy that was. And we've seen the joy of the beginning of the work of rebuilding the temple of God. And last time we saw the great discouragement of the work being opposed. Which brings us then to what we have here this morning. And the joy of seeing the work renewed. So let's read here then, beginning with verse 1 of chapter 5 of the book of Ezra. May the Spirit renew our hearts unto His work through His word. Now the prophets... Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shetil, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. At the same time, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar, Bazanai, and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus. Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They also asked them this. What are the names of the men who are building this building? But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews... And they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. This is a copy of a letter that Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bazanai and his associates, the governors who were in the province beyond the river, sent to Darius the king. They sent him a report in which was written as follows To Darius the king, all peace. Be it known to the king that we went to the province of Judah to the house of the great God. It is being built with huge stones and the timber is laid in the walls. This work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Then we asked those elders and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? We also asked them their names for your information that we might write down the names of their leaders. And this was their reply to us. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. And we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylonia. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king 
of Babylon, Cyrus, the king, made a decree that this house of God should be rebuilt. And the gold and the silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple that was in Jerusalem and brought into the temple of Babylon, these Cyrus the king took out of the temple of Babylon and they were delivered to one whose name was, was Shashbazar, whom he may, who had made governor. And he said to him, take these vessels and go and put them in the temple that is in Jerusalem. And let the house of God be rebuilt on its site. Then this, this Sheshbazar came and laid the foundations of the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And from that time until now, it has been in building and it is not yet finished. Therefore, if it seems good to the king... Let search be made in the royal archives there in Babylon to see whether a decree was issued by Cyrus, the king, for the rebuilding of this house of God in Jerusalem. And let the king send us his pleasure in this matter. Now, in theory, opposition, even hearing of the opposition the people of God experienced in Ezra chapter 4, if you remember the kind of opposition they experienced there, they might initially, as you hear all that, or as you heard all that in Ezra chapter 4, and you can just look back and see, there they did indeed encounter much opposition. Now initially, as you hear that, it might not seem so bad. Well, you know, at least, at least it wasn't me, you know, <laughs> as we so often do with things like this. You know, well, at least that's not me. That, you know, that was them and that happened in the Bible and all that. But, you know, uh, that's, that's fine for the Bible and all, but not really for me in real life. But as we read our Bibles, we aren't to read it. As I've so often urged us. We're not to read it in some sort of detached sort of way. Like, there's the Bible, and then here is the real world, right? You know, this, this, we, go, we go to church, and we hear all this preaching, and that's kind of like this imaginary world. And then we go into the real world, and we have to deal with real life in the real world, and they're detached. I think so often that's exactly what we do Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. But we are not to do that. The Bible is God's revelation for the real world, which if you have not heard, is our world, which is God's world, this world. He made this world. He gave this revelation for this world, for us. And so as we see this, as we see the people of Israel in chapter 4 encountering opposition, we see the people of Israel were experiencing that. We need to say and see they were experiencing real opposition. Not theoretical opposition, but real opposition in real life with real fears just like you, right? I mean, you have real fears as believers. It's okay to admit that. And if you're not admitting that, then perhaps something is wrong. 
Maybe we have this view of ourselves that we're holier than we are. And we forget, even as I was just praying and even pleading before God, that we would remember his grace. And that we struggle with all sorts of things and we need his help constantly. So no holier than thou here, Haven Baptist Church. You struggle too, wherever you are on the spectrum of your Christian walk. And so they did. They had real fears. They had real discouragements, just like you. They had real angst, just like we do. Real longing, just like we do. Real spiritual warfare, like we do as well. Perhaps you're experiencing that right now this morning. And I can say we are. All kinds of things. How many ways the devil would just love for you right now to not hear God's word to be thinking about something else, to be focusing on in on something else. You know, there's dinner. Bojangles is calling my name right now, you know. You know, something like that, you know. I really want that, you know, what bow muffin or whatever they have there, you know, or whatever it's called. So all sorts of ways that we can be pulled aside in real life, yet in the midst of all that, as we see that the people of Israel, they were encountering real opposition, real life in the real world. As we come to chapter 5 then, it should bring greater relief then. That as we come to this chapter, light peaks through the dark cloud of opposition. Which so often is the case in our own lives too. And so how do we see this? Well, we see... The people of God, they are roused by God and the word of God. They are roused by God and the word of God. Now, as you know, before you can be roused, what do you have to be? <laughs> right? Asleep. And that's not a good thing, usually, when you're talking about being asleep in Scripture. Usually it's a negative thing, which is exactly what the people were here. So in other words, we find that the people, they were not moved. They were not moved. They were asleep. So recall, remember back in chapter 4, or if you just look up in your Bible, if you're still at the beginning of chapter 5 there, recall where chapter 4 left off in verse 24. It said, there then the work... On the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped. And it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Okay, well, that's, you know, if you remember from last time, we, maybe you were saying, well, that's, that's not bad. You know, it stopped. I mean, maybe, you know, just a little while wouldn't be bad. But then we realized, oh, this was a long time. The opposition and its effect lasted quite a long time, so 15 years or so would go by before the work would be taken up again. And so years went by before they went back to what God had called them to do. Now we know they were discouraged. Read that in chapter 4. But it was a bit more than that, wasn't it? 
You know, as we saw from what David read a moment ago from the prophet Haggai, right? He, he said it wasn't just discouragement that was keeping them from rebuilding the temple. It was a number of things, right? It was indifference. I mean, wow, we could spend a whole sermon on that for the church today and how deeply indifference is kind of the status quo for Christians. Or even inconvenience. Again, another sermon, right? It's just too inconvenient for me. It might cost me something. We talked about that last time. It might mean I might lose that relationship. It might mean I might lose my job if I actually do what Jesus says. So it was inconvenient for them. And we see from Haggai chapter 1 that they had disjointed priorities. And so in Haggai, what did he say there? In Haggai chapter 1 verse 3, it said, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Yet, if you remember what it said as it went on in Haggai, while they said that, they were dwelling in their paneled houses and they left the temple unbuilt. And so no one was saying, as all this was going on, well, you know, it might be a good idea if we get back to the work of the Lord. I mean, what do you all think? Maybe we should do this, you know? I mean, is anyone with me? Does anyone else think that might be a good thing to get back to the work of the Lord? In so many words, the answer, at least if someone had spoken up and actually said that, it would be, well, no, you're, you're on your own. You go and do your thing. <laughs> but we're not with you. And so it is then, in the midst of that, there in Haggai, in here in Ezra, we see the people who were once asleep aren't asleep anymore. <laughs> the people were moved. The people were moved. Now, what were they moved by, though? It wasn't, it wasn't an entertaining worship service that moved them. They were moved by having heard the word of God. So Haggai and Zechariah, they arose and they declared God's word to the people of Israel. And so it says then in Ezra or Ezra chapter verse 1, now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah the son of Edo prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. And so upon hearing God's word, the people arose and got back to work. And we see that in verse 2. They arose and began to rebuild And they did so seemingly without hesitation here in Ezra and even in the book of Haggai as well. They got right to the work of the Lord. They didn't ignore God's word as they had so often done before again and again and again. But they heard it, they grabbed hold of it, and they set it loose into action. As we see that, what lessons there are here for us 
from this. I mean, just hearing God's word, receiving it, and doing it. No delay, no pause, no reasoning, reasoning it away, no fighting and grumbling and kicking. But they heard it, and what did they say? Yes, Lord. Let me just encourage every single one of us here this morning that that would be your disposition towards God. It would always be a disposition of he tells you in his word and your answer is what? Yes, Lord. May that be our disposition. Yet as we see that, We also see they weren't alone in this either. We see the favor of God was on them. The favor of God was on them. So Tatanai, Shethar, Bazanai, and their associates of the Persian Empire acted as something akin to inspectors. And so they went on and went in among these people and asked several questions about what they were doing. However, rather than opposition being the theme this time, we see the emphasis now on the favor of God, or even as it says there in verse 5, the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews. I mean, what a wonderful thought, right? The eye of God was on the elders of the Jews. God's eye was was on them, and so the work was not hindered, and it was not stopped this time. And so now, like the people here, like the people of Israel, we need to hear the word of God today, right now even, and we also are to hear the word of God and do it. We're to hear the word of God and do it. Do it. Now, in view of this then, it's right that I ask you, are you hesitating to obey God's revealed word? I mean, look over your life. Are you hesitating to obey God's revealed word? Are you excusing disobedience to God's word. And if so, why are you hesitating and why are you excusing your disobedience? Now, you might have a number of reasons for why you're not doing what God has said. It could be that you've been duped like as in you've been, you've been duped before by someone, as in someone has come and deceived you. And so you're not just going to go and just kind of do just anything. Even as a preacher preaches it to you, you're not just going to take it and do it. And I get that. Like early on in my Christian walk, I was duped. Like I was deceived. I, I began listening to all variety of preachers that I really shouldn't have been listening to. 
such that I'm very, very careful, even to this day, even this morning as I preach to you, even every single morning as I come to you each Lord's Day, I'm affected by that, that I'm not just preaching up to you casually. I am aiming to preach to you specifically, that you would hear what God's Word says, such that if I was sitting out there among you, and I'm the guy who would be critiquing the preacher, like thinking, well, what about this passage and that passage? Well, I'm asking myself that question before I preach to you all these things. Because I want to labor over God's word that you may hear God's word. Not my word. So maybe that, that's part of your reason is like you're, well, I'm hesitant because someone's done that to me. Or it might be you're saying, well, I don't, I don't know what will happen if I do obey, you know. <laughs> I mean, I fear that if I do what God says there in the word, that it may be costly to obey what God is calling me to do. And let me just pause and say, so often, friends, it will be. But it's worth it. And it's what you're called to do, saints. How I want to just press this, even as I did last Sunday, as we as Americans so often just, we're just fine with just kind of living in this culture with our couches and, you know, uh, our sofas and just kind of staying there. Well, God's word is calling us to get up and obey the word and go and make disciples. Yes, you may not, not have all the answers. How do I strategically do that within my workplace where they're, they're saying all these things about LGBTQ and being woke and all these other things? Well, by the grace of God and by the power of God and with all the wisdom of God, seek and aim with all you are to seek to make disciples where you are. Find a way. Think of all the believers in other countries throughout the world who are not kind of in theory losing their job. They are losing their job for preaching Christ and making disciples of Christ. So why are we above them? So it could be that you're saying that. Or perhaps like the people of Israel, you've, even as I've been alluding to, you've grown comfortable with the way things are. I'll take the easy route. I'll keep dwelling within my paneled house. Which is so often what we do as churches. We forget, as I even urged us in our vision 2023, that we are to be what? We're to always be becoming like Christ. There's not to be a point at Haven Baptist Church where we're just kind of fine where we are. But we're always aiming to become like him. And so the word of the Lord is here to rouse you from your sleep this morning. You're being called to trust God, to honor him with whatever the future might hold with faith-wrought obedience. It's trusting him. It's leaving it in the Lord's hands. It's seeing success belongs to the Lord. 
is that not part of faith, right? I'm not, I'm not saying we have like a blind sort of faith. But part of faith is saying, I trust you, God, so much, I have no idea what's going to happen next. But I'm going to obey your word anyway. Because why, church? My answer to you, Lord, is yes, Lord. It's not blind at all. It's faith in the living God. It's the surest of things that you can do in all the world is trust in God. So we're right to set before ourselves again the words of the father of modern missions, like why we do missions the way we do throughout all the churches. Well, this guy had a lot to do with that. (laughs) Missions overseas and otherwise. Well, William Carey, the father of modern missions, he said this. Expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. And you will only do that if you trust God. If you really believe his word, that when he says it, he's not lying. He's not deceiving you. He's not doing any of that. That you can trust him always. And so is that not what God is calling us to do? Isn't that what God's calling us to do as a church under his word in accord with his word by faith? Expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. And so whatever reasons you might have for not rising and obeying the word of the Lord, fear the Lord this morning, trust the Lord this morning and in faith, Hear the word of God and don't stop there, but then go and do the word of God. And so we see they did just that. They were roused by God from their sleep and the word of God. And we see the next here, they were roused also to bold confidence in God as servants of God. They were roused to bold confidence in God as servants of God. So here, in verses 6 through 17, and really even in Ezra as a whole, we find many letters. You'll recall last time, right? (laughs) As we walk through that lengthy letter to Artaxerxes. And so we have these succession of letters And so we saw that last time, and so we now see it here again, and we'll even see it here in chapter 6 as well as we get to that next week. So what do we have then in this letter here in chapter 5? Well, first we see a governor's honest inquiry, a a governor's honest inquiry. So we have Tatanai and Shathar Bozanai and his associates, they send this letter to Darius, king of Persia. And as we read their words here, they present their questions before the king. But their questions, they don't give off this kind of sense that Tatanai and others were aiming at hindering the rebuilding of the temple. 
And so we get this sense, even from the previous verses, where we see, we see that God had granted them favor during Tatanai's inspection, and they didn't stop the work. We see that they're kind of this honest sense of inquiry. They're not just going like after the people of Israel this time. Not this kind of sense of opposition. But it's an honest inquiry of the king. And so they are dutifully seeking the king's answer on a matter that would concern the king. So verse 17, and let the king send us his pleasure in this matter. And so we see that. We see that component of this letter. And then second in this letter, we see the people's honest answer. In verses 9 through 16. And that it is. An honest answer. You know, as I I read their words here, I just think, I mean, how good it would be if we, if we were asked what we were doing, what we're about as Christians, that we would give an honest answer like this as well. Right? Yet it's not just an honest answer they give, it's a bold, confident answer answer that God he has set them to this task and so they unashamedly say that God has called us to this and this is why we're doing this and they say so as we see here in verse 11 as servants of God bam take notice right So verse 11, we are servants of the God of heaven and earth. So they knew who they were, and they knew who God is. That's vital right there. I mean, they knew who they were, and they knew who God is. And really, you begin with knowing who God is, and then you'll know who you are. They knew that they were servants of God. Today, we are so often servants of so many, so many things. But do we see ourselves this way? Do you see yourself this way? That if you know Christ... This is what you are. You are a servant of the God of heaven and earth. Do you see yourself that way as you go to work? As you're you're loving your spouse? As you're parenting your children? As you're doing all that you do? As you're mowing your lawn? That I am a servant of the God of heaven and earth. Christians... Believers, do you see yourself that way? Listen to what Paul says of us in Colossians chapter 3. He says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Do you see yourself that way? If you know Christ, you are a servant of Christ. Man, how I I plead with this so many times in this. I plead with myself in this. 
that we would stop dividing up our Christian lives. I know you hear this from me so often, but I plead with you so often this way because this is what we do. We divide our lives up into all these areas and we say, well, Christ is here, but he's not here. Well, is that the way Paul saw his life? Is that the way Jesus lived his life? Like he's saying, well, yeah, I'm going to follow God the Father except when I'm working. Or Paul even. Or any believer in the Bible. And as we look at the New Testament, I mean, do we see that of them? I mean, yes, we wrestle with these things. We're like, how do we do this? I mean, I want to know how to do this. When you begin with this, you are serving the Lord Christ. Where you are, wherever you are. You don't have to be a pastor to do that, or missionary, evangelist, Sunday school teacher, or whatever else, deacon. You, who you are, you are a servant of Christ. So you're not standing over God, but you're gladly bowing in service to God. And that kind of heartbeat will aid you in anything that you put your hand to. You are serving the Lord Christ and not in some kind of, I can't say it right, ethereal, there we go, ethereal way. You are serving the living, resurrected Christ. Do you believe that? He is standing at the right hand of the throne of the Father. And he knows you. He knows us. He knows your life. It's not hidden. And so they are honest in their answer. We are servants of the God of heaven and earth. And they are honest and they say plainly as well in verse 12 that they were disciplined by God also. They didn't hide this away. They had rebelled. And God had disciplined them. So verse 12, But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. And so he sent them into exile because they had sinned, and they had sinned grievously. He brought judgment on them, and he disciplined them. And he disciplines us as well, doesn't he? Because as it says in Hebrews, if you're really his child, if you really know Christ, then he disciplines those he loves. Hebrews 12, 7 through 11. You know, how odd it would be if, you know, clay, real physical clay, Yelped every time the potter shaped it, right? You know, you're sitting there like shaping it along, and then all of a sudden they hear, hey, you know, ouch, what are you doing? Stop that. You know how odd that would be, right? I mean, shocking, you're just, the potter's there molding away, and then goes along, hey, don't do that. 
That hurts. Which is so often what we do, right? It's God's disciplining us. Yet what you and I need to see in the shaping, shaping and in the disciplining that God, he is forming us and he is forming you into the image of his son for his glory and for your joy. And all those things that you're wrestling with, I mean, even in the hardest of things, the sin part is you doing it, but even in that, in God's sovereignty, he is using that to shape you and to conform you into the image of Christ. As you're you know, wrestling with your children and you know, it's really hard and you're like getting angry with them, well, God is purposing that also to make you more like his son. And he disciplines you in that as you go and you, you're like, oh man, I, I really was impatient. I yelled at my children just now and we can say we do that. Don't, don't stand there and act like you've never done that before. Parents, Right? And then afterwards, you're just like, man, I shouldn't have done that. And, and you go and you go to your children and you say, I'm sorry, right? Mommy and daddy, we're sinners too, and God is working on us also. And God disciplines you, shapes you, helping you be more patient with your children. And then when other things come, like opposition, or someone in the church, you know, hurts your feelings or whatever else. God has already been working in that. And then, or even just your children themselves, you know, mommy and daddy, they're sinners too. And that means I'm a sinner also, and I need Jesus too. God uses all those things for his glory. Shaping, fashioning. We don't see it all now, but he is doing it in all these things. And so they were disciplined by God. And then in the last part of their reply, we see in their honest answer, we see the mercy of God, or at least yeah, the mercy of God. So verses 13 through 16. So where do we see that? Where do we see the mercy of God in those verses? Well, in Cyrus's decree, God was the one who said that this would happen. He was the one who sovereignly, mysteriously brought all of this about the stirring of Cyrus and everything else. And even if you just kind of back up and even see the rising and falling of empires, like God was behind all of that also to bring about this moment where Cyrus comes and makes this proclamation in Ezra chapter 1. That's God's mercy on display. Though they had sinned so grievously, even so, he brought them home. He did exactly what he said he would do. Do you see your life in Christ as God's 
ongoing mercy. He brought you home. He brought you into his kingdom. He made you his. And even now, that is what you are. Your entire life is a life of mercy. Your being here this morning is mercy. My being here this morning is mercy. Your being a servant of God is mercy. And so as you see all this, the bold, confident answer, as they arose confident in God, we also, you also arise confident in God. Arise confident in God. Now, just to consider how we might be confident in God. Let's say one day I went to a group of high school football players and I asked them, hey, you all want to play a game of football? (laughs) You know, I'm sure, and I I go on, don't just ask them that, but I say this too. I say, all right, well, I'll play you guys, and I'll not only play you, I'm sure I will win. <laughs> and I'm not only sure, I'm going to win hands down. Now, in hearing that, you'd have good reason to laugh at me, right? And they would too, just to laugh me right off the field. Like, who is this 40-old guy by himself coming to these high school football players to play a game of football with him. I mean, outside of the rules, you can't just have one player on one side. I mean, this, this is ridiculous, right? I mean, I'd be cracking and breaking as I'm running along and everything else. I mean, so there's no way I'm going to beat them in a game of football, let alone by myself, right? So why in the world am I all confident? Well, let's say that when I ask them about playing football... I knew something, though. I knew I wasn't alone. I knew I had the Kansas City Chiefs who were going to play with me. (laughs) This year's Super Bowl champions. Now that changes everything, doesn't it? (laughs) I mean, my confidence level is not off. Like, there's no way these high school football players are going to beat these guys. I mean, some of you are like, well, maybe they could. Well, I don't think so. (laughs) So that changes everything, doesn't it? But what about you and me? What about all this that we're reading here? Well, we are servants of the God of heaven and earth, are we not? I mean, does that not stir up confidence in you? I mean, this is the one who is behind you as you go and make disciples of Jesus Christ? I mean, does that, is that and should that not stir up confidence in us way more than the Kansas City Chiefs standing behind us with these, football, these high school football players? And the answer is yes. 
You're not taking up God's word and God's work alone. He is with you. And let's not make light of this. He really is God. And you can live that way in the world. You can go to your workplace and you can say unashamedly, wisely, strategically, God is the God of heaven and earth and not be ashamed whatsoever. I think many of us are, or perhaps many of us are. Friends, you are under no obligation to look at the world through secular eyes. Because that is not the way the real world works. The secular worldview is not true. We have the truth. The biblical Christian worldview. That is how you see the world. And do not be ashamed of it. So yes, live humbly. Live lovingly and live graciously. But know and live confidently under the truth that God is the God of heaven and earth. And friends, you know Him. And you are His child. And you are His servant. So arise, brother, sister, confident in God, in God and arise, brother, sister, dependent on God. This is not a you-centered work. We have not been charged to an independent mission, but to a dependent mission. Remember what it said of them there in verse 5, the eye of their God was on them. How often you and I need to be reminded what our Lord said to his disciples and to us. What did he say? Did he not say, I am with you always, even to the end of the age? God is with us. The Spirit of God is in us. So we go on and we go out dependent on him, trusting in him, confident in him. That's why the disciples did what they did. And that's why we're to do what we're to do. A dependent mission. A mission with God with us. With a God, the eye of God on us. The Puritan, George Swinnick, he said it well. The incomparable God must have incomparable trust. The more able and faithful any person is, the more firmly we trust him. Now God is incomparable in power. He hath an almighty arm, incomparable in faithfulness. He cannot lie. It is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, God must have our surest love and firmest faith. We must esteem his words as good as deeds and rely on his promises as if it were already performed. So my plea, and even from what we have seen here in Ezra 5, is may the Lord rouse us from our sleep also. 
May you and I, may we be roused by the word of God to accomplish the will of God. Not in some future day, but in our day. In this day. For the sake of Christ. For the glory of God. For the good of his church. As those who are servants of God and servants of Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come and we pray that you would help us this morning, that you would rouse us this morning. How quickly we can go and find these places of rest when you have said, I have given that place of rest for your good, but you were never intended to stay there. So may we be roused to hear the word of God and to do the work of God. We ask and we even plead that you would help us in this. May your church arise, O Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.